Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast on another blazingly hot English summer day and presumably a blazingly hot American summer day as well. Uh, the heat broke right? here. The heat broke here. Uh, it's a beautiful 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I went for a walk in the woods. No air conditioning. Oh, that sounds, <laughs> Brag, brag, brag. That sounds absolutely blissful. But, uh, you know, I'm just sitting in here in the dark with various fans pointing at me. Which is nice. Anyway, uh, as you can hear, uh, I am Pete Davison. Hopefully you know my voice by now. And maybe you know Chris's voice by now as well. He is joining us again after uh, Joe uh, was kind enough to guest star on it last week while Chris was unavailable. So, how are you doing, Chris? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Pete? Yeah, I'm not too bad apart from melting. But uh... <laughs> I was. I was all last week. And then after two days of devastating thunderstorms, it finally <laughs> Oh, I want abated. that so bad. It's like, yeah, me and my wife are just sitting here praying for rain. We just we just want rain more than anything. Just just rain. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah. I, I, I am currently uh, slaking my thirst with uh, a nice cold bottle of Brothers Toffee Apple English Cider, born in a field in Somerset, apparently. So uh, that's that's cool. That's cooling me off slightly. So, I'm um, a cider guy. Mm, I am as well. If uh, if you're wondering what toffee apple cider tastes like, it basically tastes like normal cider, only someone has poured a load of butterscotch sauce in it. So, you know, sounds delightful. It's pretty good. So, anyway, uh, we're going to follow our usual three-segment format here today. So, in this first segment, we'll talk a little bit about some recent happenings in the news and such like. Second segment, we'll be uh, talking about some games we've been playing recently, and then in our final segment, we'll be looking at our specific topic for the episode, which this week is graphics generally and uh, what we sort of thought would be the best graphics we'd ever seen when we were kids and such like so more on that a little bit later so let's kick off with the news uh chris you've been good enough to assemble some stories for us so feel free to yeah. kick us off with something um usually post e3 has been an, as a slow time but there's some pretty interesting stuff going on in the past couple days um i think one of the biggest things was that uh nis uh, Western Division uh, posted some interesting new announcements, mainly that the Caligula Effect Overdose is coming west, along with the Princess Guide and uh, the RPG Maker Mark V, um, all heading westward on uh, consoles. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty excited about the Caligula Effect because I, I passed on the Western release of the Vita version of the game uh, due to no physical copy. But um, now the uh, Overdose, which is kind of an upgraded Unreal Engine-based revision with additional content, um, is coming physically uh, to consoles. Oh, that's so cool. I'm I'm definitely interested in getting that. Yeah, um, I did. I didn't realize it was a complete um, a complete remake of it. I thought it was just a port. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I know it's that really the, beefed up. I know that the Vita version has had somewhat mixed reception among people due to mainly due to technical issues from what i understand it's it's one of those games that was sort of just a little bit too ambitious for the vita from the sound of things or, or just wasn't coded very well but um i don't know a lot about this so so what's 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 the gist well um a lot of people call it a uh, poor man's persona <laughs> <laughs> basically uh it's like Angsty teens are trapped in some kind of otherworldly school. How do we get out while facing our emotions? Things so, like it's nothing, nothing like terribly like new and exciting in the world of RPGs. But the big thing that people are interested in it, in general, about is uh, 
Tadashi Satomi is the lead scenario writer for the game, and right. he was the gentleman who is most known for basically creating Persona. Okay. So, like, uh, Tadashi Satomi did the original Persona uh, and the two Persona 2 games, as well as the two Digital Devil Saga games on the PS2, which are my favorite Shin Megami Tensei games, or the Digital Devil Saga games. So, although he wasn't involved in modern Persona that everyone loves, 3, 4, and 5, he kind of is the guy who kind of created that style of game in the first place. Yeah. So, it's got some some chops behind it. Um, a lot of the reviews I read of the original one, uh, people were pretty hard on the combat system. Um, but I hear the combat system's been revised and improved a little bit for the new version. Um, it always looked interesting to me from the get-go because it has kind of an air juggle uh, okay. mechan- a mechanic to it. So like, it's really interesting to me mechanically. So yeah. it's kind of, my, my biggest interest in it is to get my hands on it because the battle system looks unique. But for those of you guys out there who like like the visual novel, dialogue-heavy, Persona-style games, like, it's going to be a big draw for that. Well, that does sound interesting because uh, although I know that Persona 3, 4, and 5 are really popular and justifiably so. Excuse the motorbike outside. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, Persona 3, 4, and 5 are uh, are very popular and justifiably so, but there are some sort of... Um, I'm trying to put this politely. Uh, there are a certain breed of Shin Megami Tensei fan out there who would prefer the older style of Persona, for example, things without the calendar system and, and, and that sort of thing. Um so yeah, this this sounds like an interesting title that might kind of cater to that audience a little bit more than they feel they've been catered to in recent years. But uh, we'll see, I guess. I'm I, I'm certainly interested in it, and I'm uh, I'm very interested in in the two other things that uh, that Nisa announced as well. So I don't know a lot about this um, uh, princess guide thing, but it sounds potentially interesting. Sort of a bit of princess makers type stuff going on and. RPG elements and such like, and I'm very curious how RPG Maker MV is uh, going to be handled on console because that, to me, is—I I mean, I know there's been console versions of previous RPG Makers, but for certainly the last few installments of that, that's very much been a Windows program. Um, so yeah, it's going to be—it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how they handle that. Um, on the other hand, it's not super surprising to see it coming to other platforms because all of RPG Maker MV was built in, uh, pretty much built in HTML5 anyway, so it's very, very portable. Um, the the games it produces uh, come out in HTML5 as well, so you can embed them in websites as well as make them as standalone applications. You can turn them into mobile apps recently. Uh, MV actually stands for mobile version uh, rather than Mark 5. So, oh. Um, so M- MV was uh, was designed specifically for people who wanted to port their RPG Maker games to other platforms, because previously, uh, with with previous versions of that, you could only export Windows versions, and then you would have to actually port the resulting code to different platforms in order to get it onto, say, iOS or Android, and so on. Hmm. Uh, whereas MV has certainly on the PC anyway has got built-in support to export to android apk files and so on i was gonna say i think what's most interesting about mv then is it's coming to the switch specifically so we're talking touchscreen interface and on the go yeah that could potentially be very interesting indeed um if it's anything like the um they did a 3ds version a little while ago didn't they is that right 3ds i I believe so yeah, um, because what they did with that is they had a separate free download that was basically a, an RPG Maker player app. Oh, uh, okay. 
which meant that um, people could share their RPG Maker projects that they'd made on the DS and people would be able to play them without having to go out and buy a copy of RPG Maker which was a big flaw with the older console versions for things like PlayStation and PlayStation 2 and so on. You, ha you actually had to have a copy of RPG Maker in order to play people's creation, not to mention an entire memory card devoted just to RPG Maker. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's a little unintuitive. Um, yeah, um, so hopefully they'll do something similar with the Switch or they'll have some means of, um, of making uh, sort of more portable export files from that. So, yeah. Very interested to see what that's going on. I'll prob probably stick with the PC version just because that's flexible and easy to use and I know how to do it. Uh, I did do a, a cover game feature on that on Moe Gamer a couple of years back now, um, if you've not seen that. So there's some helpful tutorials and things on there. Um, I'll be intrigued to see if they keep all the um, things like plugins and stuff that you can do with the PC version because that's one of the biggest things with MV is that they completely revamped the sort of underlying scripting system that ran the whole thing and they just made it so you can use javascript plugins to basically change the entire engine uh, and that includes everything from sort of changing the resolution on pc to putting in new battle systems and ways that information is displayed on screen and such like so it'll be interesting to see how much of that is possible on the console version how much of that will be allowed uh just because um console uh platform holders are typically quite sort of funny about uh bringing in mods and additional code that might be able to provide exploits and such like but um not saying that's necessarily going to happen or anything but uh whether or not the switch version will allow that level of flexibility remains to be seen but even if it doesn't rpg maker is a really cool piece of software that you can make pretty convincing rpgs with so uh yeah that should be exciting and should hopefully get a lot more people into amateur game dev as well so yeah, never a bad thing. I have, I won't say fond memories, but I have memories of uh, playing the, the PlayStation <laughs> release of RPG Maker back yeah. back in like, I don't know, junior high school, trying to make like a Pirates vs. Ninjas RPG with my, with my <laughs> friend back in the day when that was all the rage. See, that's one of those games I was so jealous of America for because it's one of the ones that didn't get localized and brought over to Europe. So I was always so jealous every time I read a copy of EGM and they were talking about RPG Maker and such like. It was like, oh, I want that. But then I found RPG Maker 2000 um, on the internet and uh, never looked back. So Yeah, I mean, it just makes more sense on PC, but still, from an accessibility standpoint, to, to have it on consoles is going to be pretty good for folks. Yeah. All right, all good. What else we got? Uh, just a bunch of little things. Um, we finally have a Western release date for the Shenmue 1 and 2 HD, uh, mm -hmm. August 21st. Yep. Um, not too much to go over there, but that's exciting news for people who don't feel like hooking their Xboxes and Dreamcasts up all yep, the time. Definitely. Which I am of that number. Um, I know you were very excited for the uh, Namco Museum Arcade PAC version. Yes. Hitting, I hitting the Switch. Yeah, I mean, this is cool because, uh, I mean, I already own the component parts of this digitally. It's Namco Museum and Pac-Man Championship Edition 2 Plus together. Um, but these having a physical edition is is good news for those who like such things, like me. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Switch version of Namco Museum is has got some good games in it. I mean, it's got some of the stuff you expect in there, like, uh, like sort of Pac-Man and such like. But it's also got things like um, an enhanced version of the GameCube title, Pac-Man Versus, in there. Uh, it's got some arcade titles you don't see on 
these collections quite so often. Things like Rolling Sky Thunder, Kid. Rolling Thunder. Yes, <laughs> Sky Kid and Rolling Thunder two in particular. Um, yeah, you don't see those very often, so uh, those are good to uh, to give a go. I still need to write about Rolling Thunder two actually. That's a really good game. I love Rolling Thunder. Yeah, and, and Namco loves Rolling Thunder. Like the weird, the weird like hooded dude. At- enemy dudes from Rolling Thunder make cameo appearances in Namco games all the time. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah, I mean, it's a really solid game, and also you, you go and play other stuff, it's clearly quite an influential game as well. It's it's obviously had a, a big impact on stuff like um, stuff like sort of the Shinobi series and stuff. You can see clear connections with Rolling Thunder in there. Or so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and the deliberate pacing. Yeah, very much. And, like, you can feel... You can feel it as like an early example of like developers trying to suss out a way to do stealth mechanics in 2D. Yes, very much. So like when I play Rolling Thunder, it often makes me even think of um, Clay's uh, ni- that ninja game. What's that ninja game that Clay released? Oh, um, um, Mark of the Ninja. Yeah, that's it, Mark of the Ninja, mm. which, is a, which is an incredible game, and, and like you can feel some of Rolling Thunder's DNA in there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So yeah, um, if you haven't yet got Namco Museum and and or Pac-Man Championship Edition 2 Plus, then uh, you'll have the opportunity to have it on your shelf in September, I believe. Yeah, September 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's also been a good week for uh, Taito fans like yours truly. Uh, we got an announcement that there is a Darius series collection heading to the Switch, the Darius Cosmic Collection, which is going to be coming in both standard and limited edition formats. Um, no confirmation of a Western release yet, but it'll be it's it's shoot 'em up, so you can import it. Um, but there's the standard edition, which will include the arcade versions of Darius, Darius 2, um, Sagaya, which is kind of a remixed version of Darius 2, and Darius Gaiden. Uh, and if you opt for the big bad limited edition you also get the super famicom versions of darius twin darius force the master system version of sagaya the genesis version of darius 2 and the pc engine version of darius alpha uh, which is which is tremendous because darius alpha for those of you who like to collect pc engine games is one of the more expensive shoot-em-ups on the pc engine so it's kind of a deal already <laughs> if you get that nice. limited edition and get your hands on that yeah um so I that's can't remember the i can't remember the last time i saw a limited edition that actually had more games in it than other stuff i mean we've had limited editions that sort of give you a bit of extra dlc or stuff but that's usually sort of fairly throwaway stuff like costumes and such like but yeah you, you're getting a whole bunch of new games in the limited edition that's pretty cool yeah i mean most of those most of those Super Famicom and Master System versions are useless if you're getting the arcade versions. They're just more of a curiosity because they're so true, hampered. True. They're not really worth playing. But that PC Engine Darius Alpha is, is quite an exciting get. Uh, also related, um, let me see here. Potentially Ninja Warriors again was announced for the Switch. Once again, no confirmation of a Western release. But um, it's being handled by the same folks at um, Natsume who ported Wild Guns over to modern HD consoles. Oh, yeah, and they did an amazing job with that. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've ever played Ninja Warriors again, um, but it is probably one of the best games on the Super Nintendo, both in terms of visual presentation, gameplay, and soundtrack. Um, it, it takes the beat-em-up genre 
but takes away the belt scrolling where you kind of kind of go back and forth into the background and confines it entirely to a 2d plane okay so and then it has kind of more fighting game style mechanics so you, you can duck you jump by pressing up um and in different button combinations yield different moves that are kind of necessary for covering different amounts of distance depending on what your enemy's capabilities are to block high or block low so there's like my strategic mind games involved it kind of turns every scene you walk into into like a like a duel scenario or like there's yeah. three guy there's three guys you know that guy can shoot high that guy slashes low now how do i deal with them in what order to walk out of this scene like it's it's a really interesting game um it's a sequel to the original ninja warriors which was popular in arcades as one of those giant games that took multiple screens up oh, okay like it was like three like three monitors across yeah and um that that the original was also extremely famous for its music um ninja warriors again isn't quite as famous mainly because it was confined to the super nintendo but um it's one of my favorite super nintendo games so it'll be great to have it be accessible to everybody and most importantly affordable to everybody because legitimate copies of ninja warriors again go in the hunt for in the hundreds cart only so this is a tremendous announcement okay yeah that sounds really cool Uh, i i like the sound of what you're describing it's it's what what i often find is every time i play a one-on-one fighting game i often find myself thinking wouldn't it be cool if these mechanics were in something that wasn't a one-on-one fighting game (laughs) and yeah it's it's actually not something you see explored that often the 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 only one i've played that i can think of i'm sure there's more the the only the only game i've played that does very much have sort of fighting game style mechanics in a completely different genre is um there's uh a quite old Japanese indie platform game called Fortune Summoners, um, which was localized by the same guy who did uh, Reseteer. Um, but oh yeah, yeah, I have that. I just don't think I've ever played it. <laughs> yeah, Steam, I, I mean, Steam backlog and all that. Yeah, I mean structurally, it's sort of a um, a sort of open world two D platformer where you explore and find items and that sort of thing. And um, but the interesting thing is, there's three different characters in it, and, and one of them is very much physically focused. And in order to do all of her moves and stuff, you have to do sort of Street Fighter style button combinations and quarter circle forwards and that sort of thing. And oh, okay. Takes, it takes a lot of getting used to when you first start playing, and it's absolutely impossible on a keyboard as a result. But um, if you've got a decent gamepad, then yeah, it's a lot of fun once you get the hang of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I do want to play that. I, I, the, I bought that whole Carpe Fulgar set, like all three of those games that they did, but I've only ever got around to playing Racketeer. I've never played the other, the other two that they localized. Yeah, Chantelise is very underrated. Uh, a lot of people think it's just like the the combat bits of, uh, of Reseteer, but not as good. But uh, I think that's, that's the quite... 3D one, right? Yeah, it's polygonal. It, that's, yeah, yeah, that's quite an underrated game. I think it's it, it's it's got some some interesting combat and um, it's got a good understanding of things like um, making combat more than just hack and slash. There's a lot of timing and jumping and using special moves and stuff. So yeah, it, it's worth a look. It's I mean, it's not the best game in the world or anything, but it, it is a lot more interesting than people give it credit for. I think so. That's uh, that's my advice for the day. Yeah, and, and you know, keeping an eye out on Steam sales, these games are always easy to get for a song. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we, we're just too late to recommend for the last Steam sale, but yeah, next time it rolls around, have a look. Let's see, what else do I got on the docket here? Um, just a little thing for Mega Man fans out there, it's stupid, I know, but um, for those of you who are not huge Mega Man fans, um, there was a little 
a running joke and in the Mega Man fan community when Mega Man X5 was localized to the west one of the localizers thought it would be a really good idea to rename all the Maverick bosses from their original Japanese names to all include Guns N' Roses references in their names this was the first I'd heard of this and it, it oh. made me it made me laugh quite a bit but it also made me think that people would absolutely murder them for doing that today yeah, like I'm not one of those guys who gets angry about localizations, but th- but I I did get angry about this because it was just plain <laughs> stupid. Um, so the delightful news is that when the Mega Man X Legacy Collection comes out this month, the English we will have English equivalents of the proper Japanese names for all the Mavericks in X5. The Guns N' Roses references are gone, <laughs> so no more no more Duff McWhalen. <laughs> no more Izzy Spark, like <laughs> a- actual actual proper Maverick names. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, it's basically just been a good couple weeks for uh, old school game fans. Um, the Toe Jam and Earl um, indie developed follow up Toe Jam and Earl Back in the Groove uh, is starting its open beta on July fifth. Mm. Um, so that's happening now already. Yeah. That has happened. Uh, July 5th has passed. So I know you were uh, just coming into your own and starting to really enjoy Toe Jam and Earl. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd actually forgotten that this new one existed altogether um, because I, I remember it being sort of brought up a bit when the Kickstarter first launched, but it was one of those things that I'd sort of assumed hadn't really gone anywhere. So after I covered the, the Mega Drive version from the um, from the Sega Mega Drive Classics pack that released a, a few weeks back, um, yeah, I was, quite, I was quite surprised to see that this was still going and apparently was nearing completion. Um, and yeah, it looks like an interesting sort of reinterpretation of the first game, which is uh, quite surprising to me because the, the, the first game is sort of a cult classic, but it's not something you hear people talking about a lot. So seeing it reinterpreted in 3D with some new mechanics and so on, it's, uh, it's going to be quite an interesting one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely worth keeping an eye out for. Uh, what else? Just lots of little announcements. Um... Koihime Enbu is getting an updated Western version for consoles. Um, for those of you who've never heard of Koihime Enbu, it's an indie 2D fighting game. Um, but the big hook is that it's all girls, um, so it's a bit like uh, Arcana Heart. Um, but all the characters are female interpretations of classic Romance of the Three Kingdoms characters. Mm. Um, and it's also known for being pretty accessible. So. Um, that might be something for you and I to check out. Cute Moe, uh, Th- Romance of the Three Kingdoms fighting game. So sounds, sounds good to me. That's lots yeah, of words yeah. I like. <laughs> yeah, the art the art is really cool. Um, and if you're a Dynasty Warriors fan, it's neat to see some of those characters reimagined as cute girls walloping yeah. on each other in 2D. So uh, that's cool. Mm. Um, Into Create's newest game, uh, Dragon Marked for Death, it finally has a winter launch window. Um, so that is worth keeping an eye out for. That's going to be for the Switch. Um, worth looking up some footage of. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I think and they've I, been I, demoing this at Anime Expo this weekend as well. So yeah. some people have yeah. been going hands-on with it, and I've heard some, some nice things about it. So, uh, What else? Uh, Anodyne 2 uh, is coming. Um, we have first footage of Anodyne 2. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Anodyne, it was a really interesting um, old-school 16-bit indie Zelda-style action RPG. Uh, it was actually one of the first indie games I ever bought. Um, 
very interesting game. It's almost like if you could combine Zelda with Silent Hill. It has like a you've traveled to another world and nothing is as it seems kind of feel. Okay. Everything's Everything is very... I don't want to call it horror because it's not outright scary or gory, but mm-hmm. everything has a very creepy, something's not quite right here feel. All the monsters are weird. Um, so... So now we have a sequel coming, and what's interesting about the sequel is that they have specifically opted for a low-poly uh, 3D graphics approach, so it looks exactly like an like a early launch-era PS1 action mm. RPG. Like, very deliberately, like, the people look like they're made of, like, shoeboxes that have been stitched <laughs> together. Like, it's really, really cool. Um, yeah. I've, o- I've often said, when talking about the indie sphere with people, that, um, okay, it's really neat that we've got a million pixel art games, because goodness knows no one loves pixel art more than me, but I also really love the old-school, early 3D aesthetic, like... Um, you know, PS1 and Saturn, yeah. where basically you had low-poly characters with pixel art mapped to them. Mm. It's like, like to me, probably two, the most some of the most beautiful games ever made are, Meg, are the Mega Man Legends games. Yeah. Because it's specifically, like, pixel art on 3D characters, and it's just, like, a beautiful, clean-looking, bright, colorful thing. So, like, Anodyne is kind of harkening back to that early-era PS1 fuzzy, blocky... And it's just interesting to see people finally hitting that nostalgia too. Yeah, I've I've seen a couple of devs experimenting with low poly stuff recently, so I think this is probably we're looking at the beginning of a new trend here, certainly. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm all for it because uh, I've I've obviously got some very fond memories of the PS1 era. So if they can capture it well, I mean we we've talked about how they're sort of good pixel art and bad pixel art from modern indie developers and so on if they can really sure. capture that if they can really capture that feel and i don't know even if they go so far as doing like bendy textures on the floor and stuff like that that'll, that would make me happy <laughs> yeah well i just think back to like you know i have such fond memories of like omega boost po- yeah. polyphony digital's omega boost and like i i specifically love like those old PS1 era games with like robot and technology and t- tank themes because yes. I just like I just like love that the tank is like a big shoebox but then they've dr- <laughs> they've drawn a tank on the side with like pixel art <laughs> like that whole aesthetic makes me super happy and like I would love to be able to like do some work in that sphere because like mm. when Minecraft first became popular I used to do um, like in college. I used to make Mad Bank making custom Minecraft character skins for people. Oh yeah, like I, I really have a lot of fun mapping low, low, low count pixel art onto 3D boxes. Like it's mm. fun for it's fun for me to kind of think of it like a puzzle, like how to wrap those textures around. So like I really love that look and that feel. Yeah, well, it's it's another twist on sort of being artistic and creative within deliberate limitations in this case, isn't it? Which which is often where we get some of the most interesting artwork coming on. I'm sure we'll- it's the most fun. Artists love to work within confines. It, it's what creates challenge, and it's what turns it into a game, basically. Mm, definitely. How can I do the most with, with those limitations? Mm. I'll tell you what else, um, this isn't related to the graphics, but I'll tell you what, what else um, this this game reminds me of, because I, I haven't come across it before, uh, either the previous one or the new one. Um, but it kind of vaguely reminds me of uh, Alundra. Did you ever play that? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Yo, don't even get me on a lunger. That's a separate episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bear that in mind then. Yeah. Um. But I mean, I mean, just just quickly then, without getting too too wrapped up in it. I, I mean, just uh, just sort of the structure of how this series has gone kind of reminds me of a lunger because that was originally a pixel pixel art top down Zelda like, although it was thirty two bit rather than sixteen bit in style, and then that moved on into PS one early era 3d graphics and so on so yeah there's some interesting parallels there it'd be interesting to hear if they've uh, actually been inspired by that at all or if they're trying to recapture that but yeah, yeah. alumdra's a big favorite of mine as well so yeah i'm sure we'll talk more about that in the future yeah. and very few people know too um i.e alundra that uh, dual hearts on the ps2 is technically alundra 3 what yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all the, it's all the same developers oh. and, and it's and you like and the whole point of the game is that you every dungeon is a different person's dream which was the original alundra's premise fuck why didn't I so it's this? it's basically ps2 alundra it's just not called alundra but it's dual hearts it's also developed by matrix software it's the same all the same people and it's on the ps2 well i know what i'm ordering next <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a great game and no one ever knows that connection exists Sweet. Well, now you've educated everyone, including me, so thank you for that. Yep. Uh, let's see, not much else. Um, Taiko no, Ta- no Tatsujin, uh, the drum game, was mm-hmm. raided in Australia for the Switch. Um, and sometimes, I don't like to like fly off the handle and do, you know, indulge in like, speculation often, but like in the past, Australian ratings board announcements have been a good indicator that stuff has been coming west with an English version. Mm. And it's been quite a while since we've gotten a Taiko no Tatsujin game in the west. So my fingers are crossed. I think the Switch is the perfect platform for them. Mm, definitely. Also, fun fact about the Taiko no Tatsujin games, I don't know if you're familiar with, like, the cute art in them, right? Like, the little drum friends and stuff. The artist who does all the adorable Taiko no Tatsujin games is married to Yoko Taro. Oh, wow. I think I did know that, actually. I remember I remember reading something about that when I, when I was researching the stuff for Nier Automata a while back. But, uh, mm-hmm. And, like, yeah. that's why all, there's, the, there's all the cute artwork for the characters from Drakengard 3. Yeah. Because she did that. All that cute artwork in the Taiko no Tatsujin style. So it's hilarious to me that, like, Yoko Taro, like, the king of sad, is, ma- <laughs> is, ma- is married to, like, the illustrator who makes a living drawing happy drum friends. So- sounds like a perfectly balanced relationship to me. It's important. Yeah. The, balance, the balance is important. <laughs> so I think that's all I got. Um... Except for that little bit about Furyu, uh, the developer Furyu, they're they're temporarily halting smartphone game development, which is pretty cool to me because you usually hear the opposite, right? Like we're not yeah. making normal games anymore; we're making cell phone games. But apparently, Furyu's console and handheld development has been more profitable than their mobile game development, so they're continue they're going to continue to focus on console games for a while, right now. That's good to hear because they they've got that new one coming out as well that I've forgotten the name of, haven't they? They're working on something at the minute. Yeah, that uh, Crystar is a new action RPG from them. Um, mm. Caligula Effect is them. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And for me, most importantly, um, a, a Le- Legend of Legacy and Alliance Alive on the 3DS were both yes. um, them, yes. and I absolutely adore those games. Mm. Um, they get derided a lot for being kind of a derivative developer, but I like their output because they kind of take concepts that exist out there and they just put their own spin on them in interesting ways. Yeah. It's like a, a lot of people get on Alliance Alive and Legend of Legacy for being rip-offs of um, 
the Saga games, but to that I say, well, Square doesn't really release the Saga games in the West physically for me, so I'm going to keep buying Furyu's attempts to yeah. make that style game. And also, there's not really anyone else sort of ripping off Saga either, is there? So it's, it's not no. as if it's a really saturated part of the RPG market. So Saga is very much its, its own unique thing, so people who like it probably want a bit more. More. Yep, correct. So that's all I got for news today. All right, that sounds good to me because we've uh, we've talked for a good half an hour on that. So obviously a lot more going on than we uh, we might have initially thought. Definitely. Like I said, lots of little stuff, but all cool stuff. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so we're going to take a short break now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about what we've been playing recently. Christa. <laughs> Welcome back. This is our second segment, and we're going to be talking a little bit about what we've been playing recently. Now, I know you've been very busy lately, Chris, but have you actually found some time to play some games along the way? Yeah, I have in the past week. Um, I was getting my house painted, so I haven't even really had access to my consoles or my TV for a good week. But after the house painting was done, I, I've uh, dug deep back into Hyrule Warriors. Um, nice. I don't want to spend too much lip service on it because, you know, we've covered it extensively in a previous episode. But uh, I completed Legend Mode, started digging into Adventure Mode, which basically is the actual meat of the game. So I'm mm -hmm. really enjoying myself there. Um, just to plug it again, um, if you have a Switch, go buy Hyrule Warriors because I can't really think of a better investment of $60. This game is basically infinite. Yes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yes, and also, if you would like to know more about this, it is this month's cover game on Moe Gamer, so please check it out. Um, yes, so I, I'll be covering that in detail this month in both uh, video and written format. So if you need further convincing, which hopefully you shouldn't buy now, um, read that. Anyway, um, so Hyrule Warriors is really good. I will second that. I've been playing it a bit as well. Um, I, I finished the first adventure map. Well, I say finished. I beat Ganon on the first adventure map, but that left me at about 43% completion of time, which gives you, <laughs> gives you an idea of... Uh, and there's like nine adventure maps. So 43% complete on one of nine maps is, uh, should give you an idea of how long this game will keep you going. Uh, but yeah, I'm having a great time unlocking characters, learning, learning new stuff about how they play with their different weapons, um, how different characters work well together in certain scenarios. Um, the adventure mode I really love just because it, 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 it doesn't just present you with a repeated sequence of warriors battles. It gives you all sorts of interesting scenarios. It does things like test your observational skills in some levels. It's got these little quizzes where it asks you sort of trivia questions about Zelda and enemies that you've faced throughout Hyrule Warriors. And then there's things like uh, just defeat 400 enemies in 10 minutes or something like that, which is often a lot more complicated than it sounds because it has a habit of throwing giant bosses at you while you're doing that as well. So um, there's I'm often... Really, yeah. I'm really fond of like the danger all hits or critical hits levels because I, it, yeah. because it basically turns them into shooting galleries. Because then, yes. then you just equip the bow and then it's like a dodging and rolling and shooting with the bow level, basically. Because you don't want to get close to anyone because even grunts can take you down to one heart in one hit. And yeah. then you won't get your A rank because you've like one hit means you've already taken too much damage to get your A rank. So right. it, turn, it turns the entire game on its head and turns it into a distance and dodging game, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's great, and they 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 really know how tense those can be as well because they often 
throw absolutely enormous hordes of enemies at you on those levels as well. And then you see the like danger archer enemies coming, and you're like, "Oh shit! Now they can <laughs> now they can do what I've been doing to cheat the system the whole time." And it, yeah, it's great; they're great levels. Yeah. So um, I, I, I actually haven't really got into the other maps all that much as well. But what they what most of the other maps do is they layer other mechanics on top of what the first adventure map does. So things like the Master Quest map, which follows the same basic layout as the first adventure map. It sort of layers additional rules on top of things, like it does things like uh, sort of time limits or limitations on what you can do in a battle, like some won't let you use an item, some won't let you heal, and that kind of thing. And then the ones that are based on uh, things like Wind Waker, Phantom Hourglass, and so on, they've got their own unique map mechanics that are based on their source material. So on Wind Waker, you've got to deal with things like headwinds on the map and get rid of those before you can progress in certain directions. In Phantom Hourglass, you've got to reset the timer every so often. Uh, there's a similar mechanic on the Majora's Mask map as well. So, yeah, a lot to discover, a lot to learn, and a hell of a lot of game there if, uh, if you need something to keep you going for a good few months. Every map is essentially a game in and of itself. Like, I've probably put six to eight hours into the map one at this point, and I'm only maybe 15% complete. Mm. Like, yeah. it's just it's just great. Uh, you know, if you're the kind of gamer who likes to buy what I call investment games, the kind of game that you can buy and then not have to buy another game for six months, like, yep. yeah, Hyrule Warriors is essential. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I would agree with that totally. So, uh, yeah. As I say, uh, read more about that on Mario Gamer this month because I'll be writing a lot of words about it uh, that will uh, convince you further should you need it. Anyway, um, I have just finished off my month of covering the Shantae series, so I just wanted to take a little bit of time to uh, to talk about Half Genie Hero, the last most recent game in the series. Mm, yes, um, let's. Yes, you, you've played that a bit, haven't you? You haven't beaten it or anything, though. Have yeah, you? yeah, but I've played enough of it to understand like the like the structural differences that makes it different from other Shantae games for sure. Yeah, so um, for, for those unfamiliar, the, the Shantae series is sort of, it started as uh, the sort of open interconnected world concept um, with sort of unlocking abilities as you go to try and make sure that uh, certain areas are locked off until a certain point and then you can go back and find additional things and so on. As the series has progressed, it's it hasn't abandoned that, but it's kind of drifted away from the traditional way that concept is, is in there. So I think sort of Pirate's Curse is the first one where it um, it kind of had harder divides between areas. So rather than one interconnected world, you had lots of separate areas that were each their own little mini world and so on. And Half Genie Hero takes that a little bit further by having these discrete levels that are split into several stages with a boss at the end of them. So it's it's sort of structured the most like a traditional platform game but at the same time you can go back and replay these levels with new abilities and go and discover hidden items and so on and if you're playing either the base game with Shantae as your playable character or the Risky Boots DLC then you'll revisit each of those levels a good three or four times at least to get all the hidden stuff in them um, and it's really interesting how different those levels feel once you've come back with these new abilities because they they expand into these whole new areas you get the ability to go into underwater areas uh, there's walls you can break through there's hidden rooms you can't access without certain abilities so yeah this it might initially appear to be a fairly simple structure of a game where you run from left to right and then fight a boss but the further you go in the game the more interesting and complex it becomes yeah i was um i was surprised when i played half genie hero uh, having played half genie hero 
that that the amount that people were like complaining about the structural changes that it was different so radically different in terms of not being quote unquote like a metroidvania because i hadn't actually played pirate's curse prior to half genie hero i played half genie hero first right um so having played pirate's curse it's just a clear evolution of that direction they were going in like yeah. I, so i didn't really understand the backlash but also as uh, an old school castlevania fan um, it's not really much different from what Konami did with Order of Ecclesia, which is one of the most well-regarded Castlevania games. Right. Because um, Order of Ecclesia did not have one massive interconnected world. It had a map screen, and then each level was a large interconnected level. Okay. So it was basically exactly like Pirate's Curse. So like, there's precedent for that kind of game out there. It wasn't like WayForward was doing something completely unheard of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think any any backlash that there was, which seems seems to have mostly died down now from from what I've seen, because uh, all I've seen from people recently, I've seen a lot of fan art being posted of Shantae, including some stuff that shouldn't be shared with polite society. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've seen nothing but love for Shantae recently um, with the release of the Ultimate Edition of Half Genie Hero and so on. So I I think what initial backlash there might have been seems to have died down and people are accepting the game for what it is now um personally speaking i i think i i prefer pirate's curse slightly um but this isn't to sort of diminish half genie hero at all i absolutely loved half genie hero and i love all the additional modes and stuff i just think i slightly preferred the way pirate's curse did things but like you say it's way forward experimenting with different things some things they'll take as having worked some things they might uh, decide didn't work and then by the time we get a new Shantae game I'm sure we'll have something different to explore again so yeah I'm currently playing Pirate's Curse like that's like mm -hmm. besides Hyrule Warriors like that's like the game I'm playing right now and largely inspired by your coverage of it last the last month I was like I, I have to actually dig my hands into this game finally <laughs> it's, it's wonderful I mean it's, it's definitely a slightly better game than Half Genie Hero and it's definitely a slightly better game than uh Risky's Revenge. It's it's just it's pretty much the pinnacle, I think, of the series so far. Yeah, and I I think the fact that it's sort of evoking what was really a sort of golden age for um, this kind of game as well. It's very much channeling the 32-bit era, yes. which is a, which was a really good time for this type of game. I, I know a lot of people sort of still associate it with the beginning of sort of 3D and so on, but there were tons of really good 2D platform exploration games in the 32-bit era, and, sh and mm -hmm. Pirate's Curse in particular is, is very much channeling that side of things in so many different ways. It's just re really made me happy to play that game. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And like, you know, I approach a lot of games from an artistic perspective too and like so it's really interesting to me to look at the way pirate's curse is really put together from like a visual and pixel art standpoint because there's a lot of like cheating going on like yeah. if you if you look at the boat like it's it is a classic pixel art sprite but they rock it back and forth so like it clearly exists like within that engine like in a traditional 16-bit game right you would have had if you wanted that ship to rock on the water like it does you would have had to have redrawn that ship six different times in different stages of that rocking but well, all, they, would, all they're actually or uh, it would be that or mode seven wouldn't it it would be yeah. an opportunity for developers to go look we know how to use mode seven right right <laughs> so in pirate's curse they literally just rock the sprite back and forth and like it's not something <laughs> a lot of people would notice but like 
as someone who likes to fiddle with pixel art, I notice it because I'm like, wait, there's no way that's actually happening because the pixels would, dis- would distort at that angle. Like, yeah. you can't have a pixel be at a 90 degree angle. But, <laughs> but like, you know, Pirate's Curse takes that aesthetic that you want to see, but they figured out a way to still make it visually appealing and functional without bogging themselves down into the minutia of pixel art that makes it take forever. Yeah. So, like, they've managed to make a really visually appealing and still quite modern game and it's a lot of fun to engage with from that level too besides just playing it to, to try to figure out how they did those things like really way forward are freaking wizards like the work they do is amazing yeah definitely definitely absolutely masters of their craft and uh, yeah I, I think over the last month I I mean I already knew they were good because I'd already played the first two Shantae games but I'd never played Pirate's Curse and Half Genie Hero before this month but playing the whole series in succession has just given me so much appreciation for what they're good at and yeah hats off to them really yeah and if you like the aesthetic of that era of way forward games like the the risky's revenge and pirate's curse i would also recommend checking out the works of uh, andrew Bado, who is a pixel artist who works independently that does a lot of contract work for way forward and he makes his own games independently um i know you've played ultionis a tale of petty revenge all right um, yep. that's andrew Bado, and he also has another game mystic bell which is oh, yes, t- yes. which is basically an attempt to make a really adorable adventure game but tethered to a metroidvania structure so it's not really much of an action game. There is some platforming in combat, but it's just more about like finding items to solve puzzles. It's like a really, it's a good like relax when you've had a stressful day game because it's just cute and quirky and like gorgeous pixel art. Like he's a really fantastic artist. Hmm. He also works quite a bit with Jake Kaufman, doesn't he, the Shantae composer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those kind of all of those guys are kind of buddy buddy, I think. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, if if you if you're doing the same sort of things, it makes sense to team up on projects, doesn't it? So, sure, definitely. Okay, um, have you found time for anything else other than what we talked about already? Um, a couple weeks ago, at least after the last episode, but before this episode, I did get a chance to dig in a little bit to the um the spin-off game that uh, Koji Igarashi and the Inacreates crew made for Bloodstained. The the eight bit spin off oh, yeah. game, yeah, Cur- Circle, Cur- Curse Circle of the, of the Moon, moon. Curse, yes. Curse of the Moon, Circle Curse of the Moon, Castlevania, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's yes. uh, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in a creates making an eight bit pixel art platformer, so of course it's going to be amazing. But <laughs> so it's basically like take everything you know and love about um, the Mega Man's that in a creates did, like eight and nine, the eight bit. Mega Man's, the modern 8-bit Mega Man games, and basically, yeah. what what if they did a Castlevania like that? So it harkens back to Castlevania 3, in that after each level, you're unlocking a new character with a different ability set than, that you can then swap in between throughout the levels. Like, you start out with the samurai guy who has, like, a slash attack and, like, a chain whip attack, and then the next character you unlock is Miriam, which is like the main character of the real Bloodstained game, and then she actually fights with the whip. So once you get her, it feels a bit more like classic Castlevania. Mm. And, and then you get the wizard guy in level three, and the lizard and uh, lizard guy, the wizard guy you get in level three feels like controlling Sifa in Castlevania three. So he has a smaller health bar, but he has different spells with different applications. So you can access different things, or you have to actually use your head to figure out what spells to tackle enemies with instead of just running in. So it, it's a really interesting game, really gorgeous, um, classic 
like you know what we would call the modern pixel art aesthetic so it's kind of trying to operate within the confines and prevent present you something that looks like a nintendo game and an 8-bit nes game but it's not specifically limiting it's limiting itself to like frame rates the amount of sprites that can be on screen yeah. or or the amount of colors that can be used or what colors can be used so kind of the way i always describe games like this is it looks a bit like in your head when you think of nintendo games you think of them looking this way but they didn't actually yes. look this way yeah. <laughs> because they had too many limitations but it's <laughs> it, but like you know this beautiful colors beautiful animation uh, just it's absolutely lovely um, if you played shovel knight it's got a similar feel to that in terms of slightly expanded 8-bit but still 8-bit oh, sounds good yeah I, I have this downloaded um i, I got it quite late because uh, they they messed up the distribution of uh, european switch code somehow but uh, i i have downloaded this now but i haven't got around to trying it but uh, but uh, yeah i've heard nothing but good things so far so very much looking forward to giving that a go particularly after my uh, binge on into creates a few months back so Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, my only complaint about it is that I wish it was included in the physical package for Bloodstained, so that yeah, there would, that would be a be way nice. to archive it. Because yeah. this is the kind of game I want to own physically. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of indie games that I wish would get physical releases. So we're, we're lucky that we got Gunvolt for for Switch, definitely. Is that those are two really good games? I um, want Blaster Master Zero. So yeah, bad. Blaster Master Zero, uh, Mighty Gunvolt Burst. Um, those are the main ones I'd like to see a physical copy of. I, I, I'm holding out hope for some sort of Indie Creates compilation at some point that maybe I don't know, maybe has all three of those games in it or something like that. Because they, the thing that's probably holding them back is they cost like sort of seven or eight pounds digitally, and they're probably assuming that people don't want to pay twenty or thirty pounds for a physical copy of something that is way cheaper online. So yeah, I don't know. We, you never know. We might get some sort of uh, compilation pack in the future, like what happened. I would, I would pay thirty bucks for a copy of Bloodstained or Blaster yeah. Master Zero. It, it, what they should do is they should follow Nicalis's model and make a nice premium package out of it. Like if yes. Blaster Master Zero came with a beautiful, quirky NES-style instruction manual and like a mini soundtrack CD. Or even a download code for the soundtrack on an MP3 form. Yeah. Like I would consider that a reasonable enough package to justify a thirty-dollar price tag. Yeah, definitely. Same, same. And I mean, we can sort of bring this back to Shantae a bit as well. So, it's, um, I mean, Half Genie Hero got a physical release in its base game format. Now it's got this Ultimate Edition version, which is slightly more expensive, but comes with all the DLC. And I, I certainly don't feel hard done by um, with with that version. There's there's a Although the main game is sort of less than 10 hours long, which people sort of put their noses up at these days. There's, with all the additional stuff there as well, yeah, it's great. I certainly didn't begrudge paying the money for that, particularly because I got the day one edition that has this lovely art book, a soundtrack CD in it as well. So, definitely. Okay, um, what else have I been playing? Uh, I have been playing Sonic Adventure. Oh, fun, fun. Yes. Um, those of you who uh, support me on Patreon will know that I have got uh, August set aside for a Sonic month uh, to coincide with the release of Sonic Mania Plus, which I'll be covering as part of that. And uh, one thing I want to do is I want to get through as many Sonic games as possible, right from sort of the earliest ones up until the more controversial recent ones. And I want to give all of them a fair shake. So I've been starting early on these. So. Um, I'm pretty familiar with the Mega Drive ones up until now, Sonic, Sonic 1 and 2 in particular. Sonic 3 I'm slightly less familiar with, but I'm working my way through that. Best um, soundtrack. Yes, definitely. 
Um, but yeah, Sonic Adventure is one that I played to death back in the Dreamcast days, but haven't touched since. So it's been quite interesting to revisit it with the new DX content that was originally added in the GameCube version, if I remember rightly. What platform um, are you playing it on? Uh, PC. PC, so, okay. Yeah, so it's it's the, the PC port, uh, so it runs in sort of full high definition, 60 frames a second for, for the most part anyway. Um, and it's got the additional content from the DX version. Um, obviously, it doesn't have any of the uh, sort of little DLC add-ons that the Dreamcast version had, but I mean, those were ju mostly just special events in the field and so on. But yeah, I've been really enjoying it. Uh, obviously, there are some elements that have aged better than others. Um, it's uh, clearly from an era before real physics engines, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but aside from that, uh, there's 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 a lot to like about it. It, it, it controls pretty well despite the lack of physics engine. Um, the levels are uh, very varied, especially when you re revisit the same levels with different characters. They always play very differently um, with the different characters. Um, and just the fact that you've got all those different characters to play to giving you a bunch of different games in one uh, I mean Sonic's story is by far the most substantial of all of them but each of them have their own unique twist on things they get you doing different things they get you learning how to control a character that handles very differently um, yeah I'm having an absolute blast with it so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how the series has evolved from since then and I the one thing I want to do with with my Sonic month is sort of get away from this idea of, oh, Sonic has been bad for a long time. I'm sure there have been missteps along the way, but I'm sure there's also redeeming features and even the worst of his games. So this is why I want to explore all of them. I want to play them through as much as possible. And yeah, just revisiting Sonic Adventures has, has really made me happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I can't wait for some of your coverage, specifically because you're also going to be looking at... Um the weird Wii ones, right? Like Black Knight and Seven Rings or whatever. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I'm really excited to, to hear um, someone give those a real fair shake because I've never played them myself and I've always been curious about them. Yeah, I, no, I, 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 have, I haven't really played uh, any modern Sonic games since Sonic Adventure 2, I don't think. I did pick up Sonic Generations on PC in a Steam sale and played a few levels of it, but I, it's I good. sort of... Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I got a really good impression of that, but I just didn't dive deep into it for some reason so this is this is a good opportunity to, re to revisit those games that people commonly understand to be good ones in the series and also look at the ones that have been less well received as well i'm uh, the one i'm probably most interested is uh, the one i'm probably most interested in is the one that people hate the most which is sonic 2006 oh yeah 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 which i know is supposedly a total mess and a buggy piece of crap and whatnot but i am so interested to see what it's all about and also, like you say, the two Wii ones, because they just sound like such a weird concept for Sonic. Uh, and also, like like I've, I've said to you offline as well, I picked up the uh, the Bioware developed RPG for DS as well. Mm, yeah. I mean, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> so yeah, very much looking forward to today. Sonic Adventure has been a lot of fun so far, so I'm coming to the end of that now, so I'll be moving on to Sonic Adventure 2, and from there on, I'm pretty much into unexplored territory for me for the series so it's going to be really interesting to play some of these games for the first time you should also check out the weird fighting game for the game boy advance game boy advance wow yeah. i i knew i knew about i knew about Son i knew about sonic the fighters because that's on sonic gems collection i think but i didn't know there was a gpa one as well yeah i think it's sonic battle right sonic battle it's on the game boy advance and it's a, it's like 
Sonic Power Stone, basically. Wow. It's like, it's, it's like a really low-poly 3D plane with 2D sprites, and you like just run around and like wail on each other on the Game Boy Advance. <laughs> it's a really weird game. Such a weird series. I love See, it. See, this is this is why you keep me around. But <laughs> no, <laughs> right. right. I I mean this this is why I I want to cover the series, not just to sort of give a bit of love to those games that sort of a few people like out there, but they're commonly just described as bad or whatever. But just because it's such a fascinatingly experimental, weird as fuck series that Sega have just obviously thrown everything at the wall at at some point and said right now we'll do a fighting game now we'll do an rpg now we'll do a racing game um, you ever play some... sonic jam um no no that that's like the mario party attempt on the dreamcast sonic jam <laughs> okay they tried to make a mario party style game <laughs> uh, i love i love sonic well I, we did a whole episode about sega i'll talk sega all day i love yeah. i love sonic i love sega yeah, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely falling towards your camp at the minute so far. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed the Sonic games that I've played. So, uh, like I say, really looking forward to exploring the rest of those. So watch out for those uh, in August. All right, anything else you want to mention that you've been playing? No, I think that's it. I think I'm going to be stuck on Hyrule Warriors for, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of great stuff coming out next week, Octopath Traveler. So hopefully I'll have some of that to talk about for the next episode. Mm. Yeah, very interested to hear about that. That's a game I'd like to cover at some point. So I'll, I'll be picking it up at some point. I don't know if I'll be grabbing it next week, but certainly at some point in the near future there will be a lot of words written about that so yeah i certainly won't have time to play it much because i'm in the middle of too many other games but i'm just buying it next week out of principle because i'll yep. basically i basically will support anything that dev team does like i love bravely default so much it hurts so it's so, so like anything those guys do like i'm yeah. all over like white on rice well i shall look forward to hearing your thoughts on that then Okay, let's wrap up this segment for now, and then we'll move on to our third segment about graphics after a short break. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. I want to start this segment with uh, a little story from my youth, which was many years ago now. Um... This was back in sort of the early to mid PlayStation days, um, yeah, and it involved my friends Ed and Woody, who were sort of my inseparable friends at, at uh, secondary school. And we had a little ritual whenever a new game came out that was um, to do with sort of new games that were particularly impressive in science. So something like Gran Turismo would be a good example. Um, and our little ritual was that we would boot the game up, we'd play it for a bit, and then we'd call the other person, and then we'd just say, GRAPHICS! at them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all that meant was, just that one word, it just meant, oh my god, this is the most impressive thing I've ever seen. But yeah, so many times we would, we would just receive a phone call of just someone going, GRAPHICS! Or see each other at school, and like the first thing we'd see was just go, Pete, Pete, graphics <laughs> and now were yeah. you being facetious or were you like genuinely like no 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 no, no. Gen 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 
genuine. The 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 only stuff that that got a graphics from us was was stuff that had legitimately impressed us for one reason or other. So. Uh, yeah, and this continued into probably, I think probably about the Dreamcast era, certainly. So, so sort of this was after we'd sort of separated and gone to university and so on. We'd still get these phone calls every so often. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that because it's it's vaguely relevant to what we're talking about today, uh, which is uh, graphics. Uh, specifically uh, the idea of uh, what is impressive in graphics these days and how that might have changed over time and uh, whether the the constant pursuit of photorealism that western games seem to be going for is the most desirable approach and, and so on so i've got a few things that we want to talk about uh here so the first thing i'd like to ask you is um can you recall the first game that really impressed you graphically the first game that really impressed me graphically oh that's tough I can I can recall very clearly the first game that I really like fell in love with graphically. Like I don't know if that's the same as impressed. You know what I mean? Like artis- yeah. artistically and like aesthetically was Strider Two on the PS One. Okay, that was like the first time I was ever like, wow, like this is beautiful. Because I really loved. Um, you know, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, and I was talking about um, Mega Man Legends. Like, I have a real soft spot for low-poly 3D with pixel art textures, and Mm -hmm. um, Strider 2 was just that, like, beautiful fusion of low-poly with 2D tech, uh, like, low-pixel count 2D textures mapped to it, but absolutely gorgeous 2D character sprites. Like, the characters aren't 3D, so it's like that paper cutout on 3D plane look. Okay, and yeah. like that was kind of at an I was kind of at an age at that point where I was like actually starting to understand graphics, how they're made, and artistic styles and the differences between artistic styles. Like I'm sure as a kid, like when I played Mario 64, I probably like lost my mind, right? But like, <laughs> but like the first time I can recall actually thinking critically and being impressed by graphics was Strider 2 on the PS1. Okay, yeah. I, I've, got, I've sort of gone back and forth on this about what my sort of definitive answer might be, and I, I, I don't really have one because there have been several occasions where there have obviously been sort of watershed moments for graphics for me, and the earliest one I can think of is um, a game that you won't have heard of because it was uh, like uh, an Atari 8B exclusive, I think. It might come out on the Commodore 64 and such like as well, but I know those computers are an area of things that you're a bit less familiar with. Sure. Uh, but there was uh, there was a game called Draconis, on the Atari 8-bit is where I played it. Uh, it was by a developer called uh, Zeppelin Games. They were a British developer who were primarily known for doing budget price games. Uh, but their main thing was the fact that although they were making budget price games, and budget price games at that time means like £1.99 a cassette you could buy down the newsagents, this was their first uh, big-scale game. Uh, that, that cost a little bit more. I think it cost like £20 or something like that. So it was a big deal for them. What they had always done, even with their low-budget games, is they were very, very good at mastering the uh, hardware of the platforms they were making their games for. So they always had really, really impressive visuals. Draconis was particularly impressive. It always stands out to me just because it had such good use of colour and shading and such like. Mm. That era of early computer games, uh, you think 
back on it and a lot of things typically have uh, sort of very large areas of solid color there's not much color on the screen um, in a lot of cases they use display trickery like in old uh, Taito games like various versions of Space Invaders where different parts of the screen can have different colors and such like but the thing with Draconis is uh, each screen had its own sort of unique color palette and then the player sprite was uh, um, this sort of um, it was a kind of anthropomorphic lizard type thing so he walked on his hind legs but he could breathe fire and jump and that sort of thing he was always green uh, and he had several shades of green in there that sort of gave him a bit of detail and so on and then the background so that for each uh, area that you went through um, they were several shades of one particular color so one room might be orange one room might be red one room might be blue and such like but there was so much detail in those screens that i just hadn't seen in um a game on that limited to hardware at, uh, at that time this was sort of the early crossover period between 8-bit computers and the beginning of 16-bit computers like the st and amiga so this was by far the most impressive thing that i'd seen on the 8-bit at the time and that just really left an impression on me when i think back to the best of what the the atari 8-bit had to offer that's the one that i think of moving on to sort of the st side of things um there were some oddly specific things that I found impressive and I don't know how much you'll, you'll relate to this side of things but I used to be very impressed by um, what I thought of as um, a stripy sky okay what, and what I, what I mean by a stripy sky is, a, is um, a, a sky that wasn't just one solid color oh sure so, so it was something that had sort of a horizon hazing on it is, is the most common thing so it was most commonly seen in things like flight simulators and so on uh where it would it would sort of blur the line because in early flight simulators there would be a hard divide between where the ground was and where the sky was and that was sure. the horizon line um as graphics got a bit more con uh, advanced and uh developers got a bit better at using more colors on the screen they developed a way of of kind of blending the colors a bit more around that horizon line to make it look a bit more convincing and a bit smoother uh, and then there are other games that use similar techniques in the background uh, to provide a bit more color and a bit more interest in there so a good example in that regard that wasn't a flight simulator was uh, a game by a company called the bitmap brothers uh, called gods have you ever heard of that before yep i actually played the, the genesis slash mega drive version of gods a lot as a kid okay yeah gods was an interesting one uh from my perspective because it was one of the few games we had that was enhanced for the atari ste which was uh, a later model of the atari st 16-bit computer that had much better graphical capabilities it could display more colors on screen at the same time it could run things a bit faster i think its processor was slightly faster it had more graphics memory and such like um and the main way that manifested itself in gods was uh in sequences where you could see the outside uh rather than having a, just a solid background it had this beautiful hazy sky effect that was sort of blending from uh from blue to white to sort of shades of pink and so on and it was mm -hmm. it was almost like a sunset effect and that was that was really stunning to me at the time yeah that's hue shifting which is a yes make, uh, that's a tremendous um in pixel art like modern pixel art today like hue shifting is like oh that guy knows what's up he can hue shift it's like it's <laughs> it's like it's in, when, it's interesting to me because like the aesthetic i find so pleasing in pixel art is really mostly inspired by kind of flat japanese cell shading but yes. um, a lot of like the people in the pixel art scene right now that we consider like masters of the craft are the guys who really like made 
big strides with hue shifting and that's interesting to me because i associate hue shifting specifically with that euro pc aesthetic yeah and like definitely. and like i don't love it so, so like <laughs> it, it's it's tough for me when i'm on like pixel art forums like trying to get critiques and everyone's like you gotta learn how to hue shift brah and it's like actually i do know how to hue shift it's specifically a look i avoid brah yeah. <laughs> but but yeah it's it, it when done right especially into conflicting colors like if you can transition like a blue into a pink for like a sunset like it's breathtaking yeah. and like yeah. if you pair that with good parallax scrolling yes then like the yes. stripey sky is like ultimate like clouds moving in different speeds while you walk like one side to the other yeah. like that uh, that stuff's uh, goosebump level stuff yeah so i mean a good example of that that you're describing is the original amiga version of shadow of the beast i think is a good one for that mm -hmm. just because that's got such beautiful parallax scrolling that they absolutely crucified on the st version um but the amiga version of that is is still breathtaking to me. Well, i mean that whole opening sequence of that game is basically just a showcase for that parallax scrolling because the oh yeah first yeah. area is a huge open plane just with sparse trees that just disappears into the background like i can yeah. remember playing even the genesis version of that and obviously it wouldn't be anywhere near as powerful as the amiga version but like i remember being impressed as a kid by the expansiveness of that scene thanks to that parallax yeah definitely so those were sort of early examples of what impressed me um from there on uh obviously the the sort of hue shifted sky things is quite a specific example but another thing that i found i really liked in the 16-bit era was when uh games drew some influence from other media particularly things like comic books and some oh so yes one, one thing that i absolutely loved to see in 16-bit games uh was uh either uh visual on-screen onomatopoeia was one thing mm, yeah uh and the other thing was uh for things like sword swipes and so on when you would actually see the slash on the screen okay sure this is something that we we absolutely take for granted these days because any game that involves sort of weapon combat and so on always has weapon trails and such like but in the sort of 8 and 16 bit eras certainly the games i was playing that would typically be handled entirely through just the animation and but there were certain exceptions to that rule uh, one example is actually the first version of strider um mm -hmm. related relating to what you had before so sort of slashing your sword in strider had this very large sword swipe effect on screen that i always absolutely loved and that's uh, what did the damage right like the, the sword yes. swipe effect was your weapon essentially in, in strider yeah absolutely so so that was the bit that needed to collide with the enemies to do things uh, another good example was uh, a game by i think it was by gremlin graphics uh, it was called switchblade 2 it was kind of a strider ripoff in some ways uh, in that you had a sort of japanese inspired hero who had a sword and he slashed things and the sword slash effect was what did the damage and so on um but yeah that 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 was a similar kind of thing I also really loved uh, arcade games that uh, had this kind of thing. So I really liked things like Konami's Turtles games. Uh, mm. that, had, that had a lot of this side of things. Yeah, their uh, Avengers game. Captain yes. America and the Avengers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I vaguely remember uh, there was a Batman game of some description on the ST as well that was very much comic book inspired. So much so that wandering off each screen you were wandering into a different comic book panel that certainly uh, sometimes had bits of narration in the corners and such like that was really cool did you guys um, have comic zone on the mega drive in your region 
Yes, but I, I didn't play that until much later. I didn't play that until sort of the age of um, probably Xbox 360 when I got it on the Mega Drive compilation on there. But That's yeah, a hell of a beautiful we, game. We definitely had that, yeah. And th- that was one of those games that I admired from afar, certainly, because I didn't have my own Mega Drive at the time. Uh, the Mega Drive was something I only got to play on when I went around to my friend's house or when my brother brought one home. Um, so that was that was one that I would sort of admire in magazines and think, yes, that's that's the sort of thing I really like. Um, at the same time as all that, though, uh, we were starting to see the beginning of the pursuit of photorealism. Uh, my dad has always been into flight simulators, specifically civil aviation flight simulators. So he's always been big on uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator and Sublogic Flight Simulator before that. Um, I remember uh, the first time he picked up Flight Simulator version 5, I think it was. This was the first one that didn't use flat shaded polygon graphics. It was the first one that used texture map graphics. Um, They were all completely flat, so there wasn't any sort of elevation or anything like that, except in certain areas where you'd maybe have a mountain sticking out the ground and so on. But uh, that involved um, satellite photography of various US cities and so on. Okay. and that was that was very impressive to look at. Um, I did play around with Flight Simulator a bit, but it's not something I would sort of sit and fiddle around with for hours like my dad did. But I I found that side of graphics an interesting development. I wasn't sure if I liked it, but it was certainly something that I found impressive at the time. So, I mean, what 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 do you think of the pursuit of photorealism generally? I mean, do you have any sort of fond memories of it from the early days, or and how do you feel about it now? Not really, um, which probably shouldn't come too much of a surprise given mm. what, what we already know about the types of aesthetics I appreciate. But like, you know, like the whole time you were telling that story about graphics, like it's, it was funny to me because the reason I asked you if you were facetious is like my friends and I used to essentially do the same thing, but at a, at a later age. So like when I was in say from about 16 to about 22 i worked at a independently owned game shop down the street so you know me and a bunch of guys um you know some of us are still friends to this day um we would do the same thing but like specifically for games that we felt were totally hollow but only were interested in graphics yeah. So we would play a game that obviously had spent its entire budget pursuing photorealism, and the game itself was utter rubbish. And that's what yeah. we would be like. We would just look at each other and go, graphics! Like, <laughs> you know, like that's... Because that to me is like... I don't know. I find the photorealism and the pursuit of photorealism troubling because so much can go wrong, and if you fail, you just end up with something that looks absolutely terrible. Like it's like I'm always more of a fan of stylized approaches, and I always have been my entire life. You know, yeah. even like when I think about uh, even 8-bit Nintendo, right? Like think about what are the most attractive 8-bit Nintendo games. It's not the stuff like when they made a freaking licensed game based on Predator, right? Like 8-bit yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, like dithered in three colors. Like, it <laughs> it, it looks like garbage. Like, so to me, it was always games look better when they are stylized. Yeah. And, and like, I'm not saying abandon realism and photorealism in any every single way, shape, or form. Uh, for instance, uh, I really like uh, Horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the PS4, right? Horizon is graphically, it's 
super impressive game, right? That engine that the guys at Gorilla put together is unbelievable. But, like, I don't really consider Horizon a photorealistic game. Right. Like, there's there's subtle, stylized elements to it where they've taken in a point to say, we're not trying to make the real world, and these people still have a bit of an animated look to them. Mm-hmm. And, like, I find that that's an important line to walk. Yeah, definitely. What I don't like is, like... Un, you know, when we start hitting Uncanny Valley, it's like I know you're a fan of David Cage games. I don't like David Cage games. I don't yeah. like I don't like the people in David Cage games. They look like silly putty muppets that are going to try to eat my soul. I do not <laughs> like it. But because he's trying so hard to make them real that they it's Uncanny Valley, right? The, yeah. the the more real you try to make it, the more real you try to make something fake appear, the yeah. more fake it appears. Did you play um, La Noir? I did not. Mm. Alien Raya was an interesting one because um, it sort of had the Rockstar look about it, if you know what I mean by that, which is... Yeah. Rockstar does have a sort of faintly stylized style about it, and there are are elements of realism about it. But what Alien Raya did that was quite interesting and didn't quite work, I don't think, is what they did with the facial animation. Yeah, there was Um, a lot of mapping and stuff for that, right? Like actual capture mapping. Yeah, so so I mean, rather than sort of the traditional approach to facial animation, which is sort of rigging various points around, the, I mean, I don't know the technicalities of it, but you sort of rig various parts of the face and you can make the mouth make certain shapes and so on. I, I think they they did something with actual video capture with La Noire, I think, which gave the the facial animation a very fluid look to it, but it it also kind of. It kind of took you out of it almost as well, just because you had this very realistic face on what was still obviously a polygonal character. Mm, no, that sounds and, like it would put me off immediately. Yeah, I, and I mean, it wasn't quite the same sense of Uncanny Valley as you're describing with David Cage model. So it's it's certainly it's certainly a similar kind of thing. And it, it was an interesting experiment, I think, but it, I also think that it's quite telling that we haven't seen it used again since then. Not only for the fact that it was apparently ludicrously expensive and complicated to do, but I, I just think that it didn't quite work as well as they hoped it would as well. Mm. Um, what you bring up with uh, things like the, the photorealism versus stylistic thing is, yeah, that's that's kind of where my thinking has been. And my attitudes towards graphics have, have evolved quite a bit over time as my tastes in games have evolved. So, like, the story I told about going graphics with my friends... Um, that was to do with a period in time when we thought that the pursuit of photorealism was where games were going to go. We th- we thought that that was like the holy grail for games graphics was something that you look at on uh, something that you have on your television screen. Someone walks in the room and thinks you're watching television. Um, and the, the the first game that we we thought that that came close to happening with was uh, was Gran Turismo. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that had very, very good graphics for the PS1 era. It still had things like jagged edges and such like, and te- bendy textures and all the usual flaws that PS1 games had. But I, I recall Gran Turismo often being described by games magazines at the time by, if you bang your head and squint a bit, it almost looks like you're watching TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of the holy grail for a while. Um, I forget exactly when I kind of drifted away from that and from that as a desirable thing but it's it's certainly been very pronounced in my mind over the last few years in particular as i've drifted away from AAA games i start to feel like a lot of those are looking very similar to one another 
and I think part of that is to do with the pursuit of photorealism. Yeah, because well, like, everything. That, if everything yeah. has no style, it looks like reality. <laughs> reality yeah. has no that's, style. That's that's what I mean. And I mean, obviously, going for photorealism is a style in and of itself. But it realism isn't really the reason that I play games. And I know different people play games for different reasons and such like. But for me, I I don't really want the things that I'm playing to look like reality. Because I mean, I can just look outside and I can see grass waving in the wind and clouds and that sort of thing and that, that is something that I, I've been very conscious of my attitudes towards changing over the years and I, I, it may p- be partly an effect of getting older or whatever but yeah I'm certainly a lot more into heavily stylized graphics now and particularly stuff that is kept in such a way that it ages very well. Yeah well that's you know uh, thinking about Gran Turismo you were talking about Gran Turismo and the whole thing time I'm thinking Gran Turismo the original Gran Turismo did not age well. What yeah. did what did age well visually was Ridge Racer Four. Yes, Ridge Racer Four is a little bit realistic, but it has just yeah. a, a slight cartoon sheen to it. Yeah, and for that reason, screenshots of Ridge Racer Four today have a much more pleasant look to them than screenshots of the original Gran Turismo. Yes, yes, I I, I would agree with that and. It's quite interesting because Ridge Racer 4 used a lot of the same graphical techniques as Gran Turismo. It used things like sort of like the fake reflections and such like and all that kind of thing and uh, used heavy use of dithering to make it look like there were more colours on screen than there actually were and such like. But yeah, as you say, just that little bit of adding a bit of unique style to it just gave it gave it the edge over it. Um, what I'm what I'm talking about when I when I say sort of heavily stylized stuff that ages really well. Just before we recorded today, I, I booted up the Wii version of uh, Rhythm Paradise or Rhythm mm. Paradise, as it was known over there, um, and that has such incredibly simple graphics. Yeah, but, but it, they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but it looks amazing. Um, and this sort of brings me on to my big question here, which is: um, when you were younger, what? were you assuming or hoping that graphics would be like in the future well those are, pro- those, are pro- those are probably two different questions really but so so let's let's say what were you hoping graphics would look like in the future shantae half genie hero <laughs> i wanted yep. play i wanted playable cartoons yeah i can remember i can remember very specifically the watershed moment for me which was um odin sphere mm. Like when, yep. like I, I don't really love Vanillaware games because I think they kind of play too floaty. But like, just visually, I remember playing Odin Sphere and thinking, "We're here! Like we yep. have arrived!" Like that was the first game where I thought technology is now capable of delivering the type of games that look the way I've always wanted a game to look. Yes. Like, and now we have that. Now we have Half Genie Hero. I'm trying to think what else I played recently. Like you know, any any of the Rhythm Tengoku games really yep. are just beautiful, 2D, bright, colorful, crisp, clean visuals. Yeah, um, you've got stuff like, stuff like the Ubi Art games as well. So you've got some Westerners doing it there. So things like the Rayman Legends and such like as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I pretty much come down on the same side as as you now. Like I say, my attitudes have gone back and forth a bit over the over the years. So sort of I've had periods of hoping that we would have games that look like reality at some point but on the grand scheme of things the thing that i've always dreamed of is sort of true interactive cartoons so i remember back in the atari sc days i had a copy of dragon's lair escape from singe's castle 
which is one of the Don Bluth games. Uh, by oh, Ready. I love Don yeah. Bluth. Yeah. Um, so Singer's Castle was basically... Um, it was kind of weird because the, the home ports of Dragon Slayer, which was a, a Laserdisc game in the arcades, the home ports of Dragon Slayer didn't have all of the original arcade games content because they already came on like 10 floppy disks. And so there just wasn't a sort of cost-effective way for them to put the whole game in one package. So Escape mm -hmm. from Singer's Castle was basically all the stuff they cut out of the first home port of Dragon's Lair. So if you played both of them, you basically had the entirety of Dragon's Lair 1 from the arcades. And it was a really impressive achievement at the time to get sort of this quality animation on a 16-bit home computer, streaming it off floppy disks of all things that held 720k of information. Um, but... At the same time, the limitations were very apparent to everyone, even at the time. Dragon's Lair was very much a game where you wait until the right moment, then you push right, and then something cool happens. Um, and what I thought at the time was, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a game that looked like this, where you could control your character, where you could actually yeah. control your character and run around, and like, if I don't want to uh, run out of the right door on that first scene, what if I want to see what's through that door in the background? And that, that just wasn't possible at the time. But but it is now. Just because of the sort of capabilities of the hardware we've got now. The fact that um, graphic artists for games are much more capable of producing artwork that can be interactive. That can be three-dimensional. Or at least provide the illusion of three-dimensionalness in some circumstances. And yeah, that, that for me is the most consistent hope that i've had for graphics was the the ability to play an interactive animated movie and uh, as you say and as i said in my write-up of half genie hero yeah shantae half genie hero is a perfect example of that happening because you've got this beautiful i don't know if it actually was hand-drawn animation but it's certainly got that style about it mm -hmm. and it just looks amazing it looks like a cartoon on your screen and it's fantastic and then if we go back to rhythm paradise rhythm heaven as well what you've got there is something a bit different in that you're not directly controlling characters but you are doing things that feels a bit more interactive like you've got a bit more control over them than in something like dragon slayer you're still pressing buttons at the right time to make cool things happen but you feel like there's a more direct connection between you pressing that button and something happening on the screen no i mean those games were difficult to enjoy just to, to be to be generous right like yeah yeah there was only one button prompt right there was only one correct solution so they were nothing but like really games of memorization yeah they weren't really what we would consider a game these days like of course there's a fail state but like it, you were just locked into the confines of what the animation had done yeah it's not like you were controlling a sprite or a character model you were literally just waiting for a video to play and then a programming prompt was expecting a button press yeah. to tell it what scene to go to next. Like it was really no different than navigating a menu on a DVD. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly I, the same I, kind of thing. I had I don't know if you ever played um, of that same era. It was a game called Brain Dead Thirteen. Yes, yes, I remember and, that. And I had I had that as a kid. Mm -hmm. I I didn't ever have any of the Dragon's Lair games, but I had Brain Dead Thirteen, and I kind of remember thinking the same thing. Like this is what I want games to look like, but not not what I want them to play like. Yeah. Now there were some interesting moves towards that, sort of a little bit ahead of the modern era that we're talking about now, and I think. I, I, I don't know, how familiar are you with the King's Quest games on PC? Um, just, like, from a historical perspective and, like, the fact that they exist, but right. I've never really played any of them. 
Right, around the time of King's Quest Seven, which was the second to last one in the series, and sort of the probably the the second one to really take advantage of the CD-ROM medium that had sort of exploded over the last couple of years, the whole aim of King's Quest Seven, and there were a couple of other games from Sierra around the same time that were trying to do the same thing. I think it was the Space Quest and the Leisure Suit Larry around the same time. The whole aim of that was to was to um, create an interactive animated movie. And so King's Quest Seven brought on board some people who had worked with Don Bluth, who had worked with Disney in the past, and uh, they deliberately stylized their characters so that they looked like um, animation cells. So they, they sort of had the hard outlines and uh, sort of lots of flat coloring and that sort of thing. And that, I think, was, was the first game that I played that was coming close to what I was hoping for. It still wasn't perfect because the resolution was a bit limited and that meant that there was sort of pixelation on things and it, it didn't quite look perfect. It wasn't quite there, but it was it was a, a valiant attempt to create that kind of effect. And this was sort of late 90s, I reckon. Okay. So, so it was quite an impressive attempt for that time, but it, it's taken up until very recently for it to really come to fruition, I think. I have some pretty good memories, specifically of adventure games trying to do that um i used to i used to love um i used to have a copy of blazing dragons on on the saturn and that had some really nice animation i don't i can't remember if it was hand-drawn or sprite based but i i remember the the actual character models being large having lots of frames of animation and i remember thinking like we're approaching cartoon territory but like once again, as someone who wasn't a huge fan of adventure games, I remember thinking, I like the way this looks, but I really want a side-scroller like this. I really want a, f- a fighting game like this. Yeah. Adventure games for a while, they, yeah, they thinking about it, they did kind of push the boundaries a bit, because looking back on uh, LucasArts stuff from around the same time as well, we had things like Full Throttle and Sam and Max mm-hmm. and Day of the Tentacle and such like, and they all used a very... Um, kind of TV animation style at them. Again, the resolution was very limited, so they still obviously looked like games to a certain extent because of the jagged edges and pixels and such like. But there was an obvious attempt there to use some more traditional animation techniques to provide something with some depth to it. Yeah, well, because the speed of the action wasn't crazy like it would be in a side scroller right the constraints for frame rate and stuff were not as heavy which would allow them to make those characters have more frames of animation like it was basically just the style of the game is what allowed for that greater depth yeah absolutely and i think it's quite interesting to look back at early attempts to to do um more action type games using more complex animation using more traditional animation techniques so you probably know what i'm going to say here but thinking back to prince of persia oh sure yeah rotoscoping yeah so so prince of persia was an interesting one it's not something that i ever really enjoyed playing just because i found that the animations actually got in the way of the gameplay so much precisely yeah I, and this also happened with uh, games that took a similar approach but handled it slightly differently. So something like uh, Another World or Out of This World, as it yeah. was known in, in certain areas. Flashback. Again, that had, yeah, they had the same issues, even though uh, Another World in particular, that used polygonal characters, but it still used sort of rotoscoped animation in a lot of places. And those animations still got in the way of what you were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, kind of what we talked about earlier. It's just some, sometimes graphical ambition gets in the way of gameplay. And and, and, yeah. I, and I was always unwilling to make that compromise. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was it was uh, kind of a tough pill to swallow at the time because, on the one hand, I wanted to acknowledge that Prince of Persia looked amazing and these animations were great and the fact that he sort of dangled from platforms and sort of had realistic physics on him was it was really impressive. But when I fell down a pit on the second level for like the fifteenth time in a row just because he didn't jump when I told him to, <laughs> that was that was less appealing. So I I I think. Odin 3 is a good example thinking back on it because that that was that was an example of uh, we, we're getting we were getting some games by that point that had more complex animations had more frames of animation had more traditional techniques being used but they acknowledged that you couldn't prioritize the aesthetic side of things over how it played mm-hmm. you need you needed to make sure those button presses were responsive because otherwise it, it just wasn't going to be a good experience for anyone and i think this this is very apparent in half genie hero because you you press something in that and it happens straight away like that you yeah. jump and you jump straight away you press left and you go left straight away there's no sort of epic turning animation as she sort of moves around and her hair swishes dynamically in the wind and such like she just she just goes left. <laughs> I don't I don't know how Way Forward made Half Genie Hero. I'd be real. I should really dig into what techniques they use because like one of the things I really love that's quite common these days is kind of um, the technique that's pioneered by Arc System Works for their fighting games, mm-hmm. where like so, like the way Arc System Works makes these beautiful fighting games like uh, the dragon ball fighters and um like the blaze blue games and the recent guilty gears is those characters you actually are seeing on screen are polygonal yeah like they build polygonal character models so that they can be programmed to react precisely as a programmed thing instead of an image and then they proceed to draw the 2D mo- the 2D image and map it to the polygon model. Yeah. So it's act that those games are technically actually 3D. But but they are just employing all kinds of tricks and wizardry to overlay an animated 2D image that's mapped to that polygon model. And the result mm. is something that controls responsively but looks like but does not have any of the hang-ups of the of 2d techniques so i'd be really curious to see if way forward employed something similar in half genie here i don't really know how they did it yeah i i have a feeling it may be something similar because if you look closely at some of the idol animations in particular you can sort of see things like the characters heads turning very slightly and you can see like their face textures moving slightly around their heads and so on and that that looks to me as if it's a 3d model that just looks very much like it is a hand drawn piece of animation which is impressive in itself sure um so but yeah this this idea of sort of uh combining 2d and 3d is is something that's really grown in the past few years and actually one, one of the techniques that i find most impressive it's it's not sort of a really sort of gobsmackingly spectacular thing or anything but the use of live 2d and related techniques is something that has really impressed me ever since i saw it for the first time okay i think it was I think it was in the first Neptunia game that I saw it for the first time, which is um, Live 2D, if you're not familiar, is uh, an idea where you have a flat piece of 2D art, like a traditional visual novel character sprite or something like that, um, and then you, you, you kind of apply a 3D model. I don't know if it's behind it or if you wrap the, the texture around it or something. I don't know the intricacy of it, but it, it, it basically means that you can treat that flat piece of 2D art as if it is a 3D model. 
So it means you can do things like you can have characters turn their heads slightly, or you can have them sort of change the pose of their shoulders. You can't do anything dramatic like have them move their arms around or anything like that. Because you can they, have their chests heave when they. You breathe. can have, <laughs> you can have their chests heave, and you can freak out Kotaku with that, which is uh, fun. Um, but um, yeah, so so that really impressed me for the first time, and I think. I saw that being taken to the next level in um, the visual novel series Nekopara. Oh, okay. Which doesn't use Live 2D as such. Uh, it uses... I can't remember the name of the, the, the engine that they use it, but it's it, it's a similar kind of idea. But the, the fluidity of the animation in that is just amazing. It gave, gave so much life to those characters. It's honestly quite difficult to go back to a visual novel with static character sprites after you've experienced that. Um, and so that is one of the most exciting developments that I've seen. Again, it's 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 something that you only really see in a non-interactive con context in this case. But that is a, a side of things that I'm really glad to have seen starting to improve over time. So if you sort of combine those the things we talked about together into one game, so if you have a game that's got um, sort of these dynamic character animations in dialogue scenes and then something that looks like half-genie hero during... Um, during actual gameplay, you basically have that new Neptunia game that's coming out soon. Yeah, I, I find um, I find Live 2D to be a real double-edged sword. Mm. Kind of like when you we were talking about with photorealism. Like maybe it's just coming from me understanding a little bit of the art aspect and kind of understanding and knowing what Live 2D is and how it works. But like I can a immediately tell when something's Live 2D. Mm -hmm. And and the problem with that being much like with the photorealism, if it's not done right, yeah. it looks really cheap and really crappy. Like to to the point where I would rather it not be there. Like yeah. poorly implemented live two D is a lot more offensive to me than just a static image. Yeah. Like because it looks really bad when it's not done right. Well, it looks really good when it's done right, but it, mm -hmm. it's very easy to do it cheaply and approach the live two D almost non-committally and just think it's an inexpensive way to add some zhuzh to your yeah. static imagery. And like, if you're not committed to doing it right and making it look good, you what you end up with is a product that it looks really cheap. Yeah. No, I can I can see what you're saying there. Definitely. This this is why I particularly want to highlight Nekapara as a good example of this being done really well because yeah. it's got very very natural character animations of I, I don't know if they've been specifically captured as such but they they certainly look like uh, very convincing movements of things like the head and the shoulders and such like I, I, again there's 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 no sort of full rigging on the whole body or anything like that but. For me, that that added a lot to the experience of of reading those visual novels. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think uh, to sort of kind of wrap up our discussion here, then, um, what are some current favourites? Do you think are doing it right in terms of what you were hoping games to look like? We've already mentioned Half Genie Hero, obviously. Are there any others that you can think of? Uh, well, um, going away from the cartoony thing a little bit, just to pay some lip service to something that's 3D that I think is beautiful. Um, uh, dra the upcoming Dragon Quest Eleven, right, is yeah. un unbelievable. Um, for pretty much any uh, modern Dragon Quest, um, the Dragon Quest Heroes titles were also all beautiful. Um, Akira Toriyama's simple, um, brightly colored art style with like simple shapes and like lower lower super details really translates so beautifully to 3d 
like this stylized brightly colored like fairy tale vision of 3d it's like these modern dragon quest games are like everything i always wanted a 3d game to look like right um so like there's that like i mentioned all the current arc system works games um i i actually really like the graphical style that netherrealm uses in their fighting games right now because i i think it's an example of the like the reverse effect of what we have talked about so like i remember playing mortal kombat and like it, of course mortal kombat was an attempt to be photorealistic right because it, instead of sprites mm-hmm. it was actual pictures of people yeah and it looked like muddy garbage and i remember not <laughs> i remember not being impressed with mortal kombat as a kid yeah absolutely I because the same. because of uncanny valley i didn't think it looked cool i thought it looked trashy i still played mortal kombat because it was fun but it was never because i was impressed by the quote-unquote photorealistic graphics but like now the nether realm fighting games are they have nailed a very specific 3d comic booky stylized approach so like i i really like their graphical style now like that's an example of them realizing that something wasn't c- perhaps correct and now they're doing something that's stylized, looks good, and fits for their games. So, like, kudos to them for that. Um, modern pixel art stuff, but that's not really an example of what we're talking about right now. Mm. But yeah, but yeah, I would point people to the to the new Dragon Quest as really really getting it right in terms of striking the fusion between impressive technology, but a stylized approach, so that you're not taken out of the experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, from my perspective, I, I I think I probably want to highlight Gust's games in this regard. Oh yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, because although they they're not the most technically impressive games in the world, particularly when you look at things like the the background art and so on, um, they put a lot of love and effort into their character models in particular. So that their character models are always very very true to the original two D art for them. And this is especially true in uh, Knights of Azure for one. Blue Reflection is another great one. Blue Reflection's got beautiful character designs. And oh, the, yeah. Strikingly the, beautiful. The 3D models in, in that really capture the 2D art really nicely. And Blue Reflection has its own technical problems in that its frame rate is complete ass, uh, which puts some people off. But the, the amount of detail in that game, that is one of the few exceptions in, in Gus's portfolio where they've actually gone the extra mile in background detail as well. So the, the actual texture work in the in the school settings in that is just astonishing. So it, it that looks really great. And that's, that's the sort of thing that I find really pleasing these days. Um, and also, I think, um, again, although it has technical flaws here and there i think the senran kagura series has got uh, a lot of things i like about it about the character models in particular um there's some very good animation going on especially in sort of the the post-match victory scenes and so on um and in games like uh, bon appetit where they're they're doing things other than fighting so they're, they're cooking and doing other stuff like that as well i think they've got a good grasp of who those characters are how they move how they look doing different things besides just the things that they're most well known for um, and yeah, that's that's certainly one that I, I like coming back to for the way it looks, certainly. One thing I find interesting is, um, like, Center and Kagura's visual style is very, like, it skirts the line of what we would used to consider, traditionally consider, quote-unquote, cell shading, yeah. but, it's, but it's not anymore, because, like, 
what we used to consider cell shading in like the PS2 and PS3 eras, just like technology has made that passe. Like a game yeah. either kind of looks cartoony or it doesn't now. Like that specific style is not necessary anymore. I almost mm-hmm. wish I wish they would though. Like uh, an example would be probably one of the most beautiful games in the history of Earth is um, the Transformers game that Platinum made. Oh yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for modern generation because that is a modern cell shaded game trying to ape the look of the classic. Um, more specifically, I think it looks more like the Japanese Transformers or the more recent um, Japanese Transformers stuff and like, yeah. like art for the figures. And it actually looks like the old cartoon. I think people who say that game looks like the old cartoon haven't watched the old cartoon in a very long time. <laughs> like the the shininess and stuff is very reminiscent of the type of shading that uh, Masami Obari uses in his mecha animes. Like it's it's very modern, but it's cell shaded, and you don't see a lot of cell shaded games nowadays. Mm. Um, I'd like to see more of that. that. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I, I remember sort of seeing my first cell shaded games and thinking, wow, this is, yeah, this is really impressive. This is a significant step forward towards the sort of things that I'm after. Um, in terms of Senran Kagura, I think a part of that, a part of what you're describing is, is to do with the original art style, which is Nan Yagashi's uh, art for those characters is very, very flat shaded anyway. And I think a lot of the sort of character textures that they use on the models really captures that, which gives them that very sort of. <laughs> I hesitate to use the word flat when talking about the Senran Kagura character, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it gives them that sort of flat colour feeling about mm-hmm. them, which is as you as you say, kind of reminiscent of the old cell shading look. But I guess Nino Kuni, I guess the character models in the new Nino Kuni are technically yeah. so. Like level five really seems to be the only people who are still like championing cell shading in a traditional mm. sense. Yeah, it's definitely something I'd, I'd like to see more of. But yeah, the Persona Five kind of touches on it a bit as well, uh, but again, that has sort of slightly more realistic backdrops. Although, mm-hmm. although Persona Five, its sort of PS3 origins are very apparent in the backdrops, in that the, the backdrops aren't terribly complicated, which kind of works in its favour in some ways. It gives it a slightly more stylized look than obviously trying to go for a photorealistic Tokyo, especially when you layer these anime style characters on top of it so yeah that's another interesting example so persona 5 is a lovely looking game anyway yeah well i mean that persona 5 is an example of how you can use appropriate stylization and a cohesive visual direction to perhaps even disguise what could be technical shortcomings yeah like i haven't played it myself but i've you know watched enough footage of it and seen enough screenshots to understand that it may not be the most technically impressive game but style trumps technology every time when it comes to a cohesive artistic direction yeah absolutely alright anything else you'd like to say on this topic before we wrap up for today I I think that's it Um, give me more cell shaded games please Um, and more more stuff that looks like Shantae half genie hero Um, seconded can't wait for that new vanillaware mecha game (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't even remember what that's called. Aegis Rim, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about it, actually. Yeah, everyone forgot about it. I think Vanillaware forgot about it. Uh, <laughs> but that's an example of something I'm looking forward to that kind of will certainly encapsulate everything I've wished games could look like. Uh, that new game from uh, that, that Nintendo showed, um, Demon X Machina. Yes. That's a, a really great example, right? Like, you can tell it's kind of low poly but because they've like jacked up cell shading techniques on it it just looks stylish so Mm. like it's a great example of kind of 
modern technology being aided by stylistic art direction to deliver something unique. Yeah, really interested to see how that's going to end up because there's a lot of big talent attached to that. Yeah, big robot talent. Um, <laughs> I think you know the big message I would have for developers and stuff is to always consider what technology makes available to you and understand that that's not always photorealism. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of the techniques we described here today, specifically like with what Arc System Works does in, in mapping imagery to 3D polygonal models, was not remotely accessible to do years ago. It's like, the level of technology we have now doesn't just allow us to achieve greater photorealism, more bloom lighting, more blades of grass. It also allows us to experiment with new tricks and techniques to innovate and present interesting new stylized attempts at visual presentation as well. Like, we have opportunities to present interesting styles that we never had before. Yeah. And and the same processing powers that make photorealism possible are also what make those unique presentations possible. Yeah. Absolutely agreed on all of that. So... All right, I think that's been an interesting discussion there. So we'll hold it there for now because I know you could probably go on about this for several hours more, but I won't subject everyone to that. (laughs) (laughs) I can go on for a lot of things about way too long. If if there's anything anyone's (laughs) learning about me at this point. I jest. I could talk about this for hours as well. You you wait till you get me started on music again. Anyway, so uh, let's wrap this up. I've said this for the third time now. this has been Pete Davison of MurrayGamer.net. You can find my writing and articles and all sorts of other good stuff there. At the time of recording, the cover game for the month is Hyrule Warriors Definitive Edition. So we talked a bit about that earlier on. So if you want to find out a bit more about that, check out the site uh, to find out a bit more about the history of it. Uh, and we'll be moving on to discussions of its gameplay and its story and all manner of other good stuff in depth from there. So that's MurrayGamer.net. Uh, of course, there's other videos coming on this channel as well currently doing a let's play uh, run through of sorcery saga curse of the great curry gods which i forgot to plug earlier in our what we've been playing segment so i'll plug it now um that's a fun little mystery dungeon like that is uh, is worth a look recently released on steam if you've uh, not come across that um, and chris where can people find you on the internet uh, mrgilderpixels.com or at instagram as mrgilderpixels um just starting to get drawn and painting again after my home renovation stuff so i'll be posting some new stuff throughout the week hopefully so uh, make sure to check me out give me a follow good stuff all right thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks thanks for watching if you enjoyed this video please help out the channel by leaving a like or a comment and subscribing be sure to check out murraygamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Murraygamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both down in the video description. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.